The Horrors of Pompeii. Guy D. Middleton. The name, Eutychus, was etched into a wall 2,000 years ago. Finding out who she was illuminates the dark side of Rome. Fresco from the Lupaner Brothel, in Pompeii, C70-79 CE. Courtesy Wikipedia. Guy D. Middleton is a visiting fellow in the School of History, Classics and Archaeology at Newcastle University, Newcastle. His books include, Understanding Collapse, Ancient History and Modern Myths, 2017, Collapse and Transformation, The Late Bronze Age to Early Iron Age in the Aegean, 2020, and Women in the Ancient Mediterranean World, From the Paleolithic to the Byzantines, 2023. Edited by, Sam Dresser. For Thousand Words. Email save. Eutychus, a Greek lass with sweet ways, two asses. This pithy graffito advertising sex for sale comes from the walls of Pompeii. The ancient Roman city was already an old town when it was destroyed in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in August 79 CE and thus preserved for posterity. Located on the Bay of Naples, near the mouth of the River Sarno, there are early signs of Etruscan culture, though the area was later settled by Oscan-speaking Samnites, who began the town's real growth after around 200 BCE. The land around Pompeii was fertile, and the city and region grew wealthy. As Rome expanded its power throughout Italy, Pompeii became a Roman city, though one that retained a diverse population. We can imagine a busy place of some 12,000 people, rich and poor, free and enslaved, of public squares, fountains and gardens, fine houses and poorer dwellings, taverns, shops and workshops, and a stone amphitheater for the provision of large-scale public entertainment. There would have been a clamor of Oscan, Greek and Latin, and all the activities we would expect from a thriving town, politics, business, love, crime. Graffiti is one of the most exciting kinds of evidence preserved for us by the destruction of Pompeii because it comes not from the literature of the elite or the inscriptions of the powerful, but from a wider cross-section of society. The Eutychus Graffito gives us a woman's name, an ethnicity, a price, the hint of a good time to be had, and suggests a seamy side to the ruined town now frequented by inquisitive tourists and keen culture vultures. It was written on the vestibule wall of a well-to-do house owned by two freedmen, the Vedii, which is perhaps best known to the world for its painting of the well-endowed Priapus weighing his member on a balance against a bag of coins. While brief and to the point, this announcement, calling out to us from nearly 2,000 years ago, can set us on a journey to understanding more about the life of Pompey's haves and have-nots. At the same time, it may well leave us with more questions than answers about Eutychus herself and the prostitutes of Pompey. Pompeii, often seen under the bright sun with hordes of other visitors, does not hide its darker side, in fact, the single-purpose-built brothel, identified in the city, known as the Lupaner, is one of its most popular attractions. The sexy frescoes are one highlight. Eight can be seen above the doorways of the little cubicles with their masonry beds. Five or six are female male sex scenes, another shows a woman standing next to a reclining man as she points at an erotic picture, and the last depicts the god Priapus with two erect phalluses. These show something very basic and timeless that we have in common with ancient Pompeians, sex, but they also titillate the visitor and sometimes prompt dirty jokes from both guides and visitors. The frescoes presumably indicate the kind of activities that were available to customers and helped in creating an erotically charged atmosphere. One of three. 
Thanks to the graffiti in the brothel, we even know the names of some of the women who worked there, Anidia, Apollonia, Athos, Baroness, Cadia, Cressa, Draca, Fabia, Faustia, Felicla, Fortunata, Habenda, Helpis, Annuaria, Ias, Mola, Murthys, Myrtale, Mysis, Nyes, Panta, Restituta, Rosatia, Sepsis, Victoria, and the daughter of Salvius. Eutychus does not appear in the list, although it might well be that those were working names, some of them appear in graffiti elsewhere in town. They were on display naked with prices, to be perused, evaluated and chosen by the male clientele. How would Pompeians and other visitors have experienced the brothel? We can learn something of this from a fragmentary literary text called the Satyricon, written in the first century C by an elite Roman called Petronius. In the scene, the male character in Calpius has become lost in town. An old woman tricks him into entering the brothel, whereupon. I notice some men and naked women walking cautiously about among placards of price. Too late, too late, I realized that I had been taken into a body house. I cursed the cunning old woman and covered my head and began to run through the brothel to another part when just at the entrance a siltos met me, as tired as I was, and half dead. It looked as though the same old lady had brought him there. I hailed him with a laugh and asked him what he was doing in such an unpleasant spot. He mopped himself with his hands and said, If you only knew what has happened to me. What is it? I said. Well, he said, on the point of fainting, I was wandering all over the town without finding where I had left my lodgings when a respectable person came up to me and very kindly offered to direct me. He took me round a number of dark turnings and brought me out here and then began to offer me money and solicit me. A woman got threepence out of me for a room and he had already seized me. The worst would have happened if I had not been stronger than he. Petronius was writing comedy, but there is no reason to dispute the incidental details which can bring the Lepainer to life. His description suggests brothels would be located in more out-of-the-way parts of town and were not necessarily identifiable from the outside, the prostitutes and punters were screened from the outside world by a curtain. It also reveals that people could be enticed or tricked into visiting, presumably chaperones who drummed up trade got a fee. The prostitutes themselves were on display naked with prices, to be perused, evaluated and chosen by the male clientele. Cubicles or rooms could be rented out for private use. The Roman poet Horace wrote about men's choice of sexual partners in one of his satires, where he is pointing out the follies of some men, especially in hankering after or having affairs with elite or married women. He suggests that prostitutes are a much more sensible choice when a man had need of sex. For one thing, their faces and bodies are visible, he says. In contrast to respectable women, whose bodies were well covered, prostitutes' clothes could be revealing, allowing the man to view what he might want to buy and use. And, during the encounter, Horace says, a man might call the prostitute by any name, she could be expected to cater better to man's fantasies. Horace, at least in character, preferred these women to be fair and natural, smartly turned out, prompt and inexpensive. The satyricon begins to fill in the details of the lives and environment of some prostitutes, those who worked in brothels, at least, but, so far, from the text and the paintings we have something of a light-hearted view of what went on. 
However, the reality of the women in the brothel, naked and carrying their price placards, was a grim one, their bodies put to use for the profit of the brothel's owners, their physical and emotional work performed in tiny open cubicles or sex booths. Most of them were slaves, who had little choice in what they were doing, at the mercy of their owners and customers. Poorer free women too were vulnerable and had probably been driven to prostitution by necessity. About a fifth of the women's names in the brothel indicate they were free. Slavery was an accepted institution in the Roman Empire, and slaves of all kinds, agricultural workers, urban house slaves, laborers, miners, teachers, and prostitutes, were everywhere. Some few slaves may have lived relatively privileged lives, and others had a degree of independence in their work and life, within the confines of being owned, some could even hope to be made free. But there are also somber reminders of the less fortunate. Columella, also writing in the first century C, explained how slaves on the farm should be treated and managed. He recommended their constant supervision and physical restraint in chains and in slave prisons, ergastula, as well as keeping control over where they could go, whom they could see, and also their bathing, religious practices, and sex. What was the regime like for slave prostitutes in the Lepaner? Slaves often had no space of their own but were simply part of the furniture. Enslaved people might be denied a love or sex life of their own but also be forced to reproduce a source of new slaves, while female slaves might be forced into sex to help control male slaves. Sexual abuse and rape by owners was one particular vulnerability of slaves, female and male, child and adult. Many slaves could expect to be used sexually by their owners as a matter of course, perhaps household slaves in particular given their proximity. In another satire, Horace gives the line, when your organ is stiff and a servant girl or a young boy from the household is near at hand and you know you can make an immediate assault, would you sooner burst with tension? He also wrote an ode on the topic, advising his friend not to be ashamed of loving his slave when Achilles and other heroes did the same. A gold armband from Pompey hints at this kind of relationship, it carries the legend from the master to his slave girl. Yet as well as perhaps being an earnest gift, it was also a reminder of who is who in the relationship. Sometimes, slaves may have been able to leverage sex to their advantage. Archaeology furnishes more tangible evidence of the life of the enslaved. The relative absence of slave quarters in elite houses suggests that slaves often had no space of their own but were simply part of the furniture. They may have hidden and slept where they could, including making use of the spaces under staircases and dark and unpleasant cellars. These cellars could have other uses, too. At Pompeii, in the Villa of the Mosaic Columns, the skeleton of a slave was found in a cellar with iron shackles anchored into the ground. This seems to have been a slave prison. Leg irons were, found, in a cupboard in the house of the Venus in Bikini, perhaps a half-hidden but lingering threat to coerce slaves into good behavior. Beatings and whippings and the threat of violence were commonplace means of control and punishment by slave owners. There was not only the physical pain involved, but also the humiliation of such a personal affront which the victim was powerless to prevent. Compulsion and coercion were enforced psychologically as well as physically. Perhaps the Lepaner had its own bouncers, ready to deal with any trouble from customers or from the women themselves. The advert also stresses Eutychus sweet ways, Moribus Bellis. This is found on a number of graffiti in Pompeii. 
In the Lupaner, we find Restitua with sweet ways. Other prostitutes, such as Spes, Successa, and Menander, a man, are so labeled. This label suggests a good time in an indirect fashion, perhaps good company as well as a sexual service. Indeed, Sarah Levin Richardson reminds us that prostitution could also involve emotional as well as physical labor. A prostitute would likely have had to run the gamut of emotions, appearing cheerful, coy or aroused, enticing and passionate, pliable or dominant, depending on the circumstances. This contrasts with some of the other graffiti around the town that elaborates on the specific services offered, especially philodio and sex. Finally, what of the price of two asses, copper coins? It seems low, the same price as a loaf of bread. Recorded prices for prostitutes varied, but most tend to be from one to five asses. Two asses seems to have been a common price at Pompeii and may have been a kind of standard low rate. Price could reflect a number of factors. It would be calculated to attract a high volume of customers, or it may reflect the age and perceived appeal of the woman. It could have been used as a punishment. Perhaps there was an element of haggling possible once a punter had expressed an interest. Independent prostitutes may have had little means to protect themselves and enforce payment. We should also consider what the location of the graffito adds to the story. The text was written on the left wall of the vestibule of the house of the Vedii. The Vedii are usually thought of as brothers, Aulus Vedius Conviva and Aulus Vedius Restitutus, who were freed slaves who took on the name of their former master, Aulus Vedius. Their names were on bronze seals found near a large wooden strongbox in the house, along with a ring with the initials AVC. In graffiti on the outside of the house, Conviva is named as an Augustalis, a priestly position open to former slaves, while Restitutus urges voters to support one Sabinus. Whether they were brothers, father and son, friends or co-workers can't really be known, but they seem to have had some wealth and privilege, including their well-decorated townhouse. The Priapus painting emphasizes the Vedii's wealth, as Priapus was a god of fertility, besides the member and the money, the painting shows his basket of fruit on the ground. Two of the funny stories associated with him, related by the poet Ovid, have him failing to rape the goddess Hestia and a nymph called Lotus. The other paintings in the House of the Vedii may tell us more about the life of the house and its inhabitants, and shed light on Eutychus. One careful analysis by Beth Severyhoven focuses in particular on the sets of paintings found in a pair of reception rooms called N and P. The rooms and their decorative scheme seem to mirror each other. Room N has two violent paintings. On the back wall is a depiction of the punishment of Pentheus, who was killed by the female worshippers of Dionysus. The naked Pentheus is falling, arms spread wide as the women attack him from all sides. On the wall on the right, the punishment of Durs is shown. She is tied, naked, under a bull to be trampled to death, a fate she had planned for another woman, Antiope. The Punishment of Durs The Punishment of Ixion All, courtesy Wikipedia. One of three. Room P shows the punishment of Ixion at the back, who is tied to a fiery wheel for eternity for trying to rape Hera, and the punishment of Pasiphae, made, for her husband's crimes, to lust after a bull, on the left. Each room, then, shows the torture of a female and a male character from mythology. 
Those in room N were punished by humans, and those in P by the gods. Severihoven argues that we can read the decoration from the perspective of the Vedii being freed slaves and from a perspective of power. As we already noted, enslaved people were there to be used sexually and were likely to be punished in numerous ways, which may have been something the Vedii themselves experienced. The Vedii's choice of these images of punisher and punished to decorate their public dining rooms would call to mind the distinction between master and slave, both for themselves and for their slaves. As Severihoven puts it, when the owner selected these images of eroticized torture, he was inscribing his own power to punish or to enjoy onto his very walls.